You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, January 10th, 2007. This is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. And joining me this evening is Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Harry DeAngelis. Good evening. And Evan Bernstein. Hello, everyone. How are we all doing this evening? Good, Good. Steve. Okay. Couldn't be better. We uh, have our first interview of the year coming up later in the show with Dr. Spencer Wirt, who is uh, who, the author of the book, The Discovery of Global Warming. We've been having a lot of questions on that particular topic, and we wanted to address it in, in some more detail, so we got an expert on to help talk us through it. Uh, we have a few news items this week. Bob, you wanted to talk about Coca-Cola's new product called Enviga. Is that how you think you pronounce it, Enviga? I think. I think that's what it's called. Um, yeah, this is interesting. It re- this really caught my attention. They they released recently uh, for, for national distribution a new product called Enviga that has negative calories. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, it's called uh, it's called Enviga. It's being marketed by both Coca-Cola and Nestle. Negative calories and means it takes more calories to drink than it puts on. Well, apparently it, uh, it it it's supposed to help you burn more calories. I believe a can has about five calories, but since it's supposed to actually um, doesn't in- water do that? Yeah, water sure. does, and teas and coffee. Well, the uh, the main ingredient, the thing here that that really gets this thing going is the is the caffeine. This is essentially sparkling green tea with added with added caffeine, and the calorie burning power is is from what I've gathered is the combination of the caffeine and something called EGCG, which is an ant- antioxidant naturally found in green tea. Now, the Invega website claims that healthy subjects in the lean to normal weight range can experience an average increase in calorie burning by 60 to 100 calories. Now, my first question here is why were the test subjects in the lean to normal weight range? Yeah, what about the fatties? That's who's going to want. Maybe those are the only one that yielded the positive data, and the other guys didn't show that they lost any weight uh, or and burned any calories by drinking the thing. Well, I was just going to say that just seemed like a big red flag to me. Why? I mean, why would why wouldn't you just get overweight people and see? I mean, these are the people that you would think would be interested in it. So that's my first question: Why? You know, why is that the case? And secondly, they well, listen. This is typical, though, of uh, of weight loss products. It's basically a bunch of stuff and caffeine. You know, yeah. and the, and the bunch of stuff is irrelevant. The, right. green, the, the 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 bunch of stuff is for marketing. It's to make it sound glitzy. Ooh, it's got green tea extract. That's the supplement of the week. You know, that's that's what people are looking for. But the caffeine is the goods. That's what whenever you have it, the, the, all of these, you know, over the counter or whatever uh, weight loss gimmicks. It's the caffeine that's that's doing it. That's it increases the metabolism. It's not. It's really a bad, unhealthy way to lose weight. By the way, because the, the effects are temporary, and you in the long run, it's actually where you're worse. Well, off. a small amount of caffeine is good for you, right, Steve? They're not guaranteeing I mean, any. They're not guaranteeing any kind of weight loss for you. They're just no. They are claiming. very careful. They are very careful. You won't find weight loss. Uh, anywhere in the advertising, uh, they they pretty much say you know you'll you'll basically be burning more calories, and uh, the, the even the 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 claim isn't 
very spectacular. They claim a loss of 60 to 100 calories for every three of the 12-ounce cans that you drink. Mm-hmm. And that, so that boils down to, what, 20 to 33 calories per can. That seems pretty piddly to me, yeah. 20 to 33 calories. So I did some uh, back-of-the-envelope calculations, and uh, that's 105 to 175 cans per pound. Uh, you know, 3,500 calories per pound. I mean, wouldn't you lose more than a pound just lifting 175 cans to your mouth over and over? <laughs> you know, th- another interesting source of of calorie burning is that if you drink it cold, you, your body has to spend calories right. to heat it up to body temperature as well. But that only amounts yeah, to a that's, that's true. A, that's like 10 or 15 calories probably. I don't know if they they're counting that in their calculation. It all matters. Right. Well, I get the and feeling that a lot of people will. If, the people who are drinking it probably will lose weight because before they were probably drinking Coke. And yeah, when you switch if, from, right, if, you know, well, something yeah, that's very you, high calorie to If you substitute, no if you drink no, no more no more Coke, you know, not Diet Coke, but just regular Coke or Pepsi, and you substitute it with this, then you will definitely, over the course of a year, I mean, that could translate into, into 10 pounds. I don't think many people are going to be doing that. But uh, the cost, though, per pound of weight loss would be anywhere between 136 dollars to 227 dollars per pound that's what it's that's what it's going to cost you i've got some uh, some good quotes here from uh, from a doctor here's dr david katz steve uh, maybe you might even know this guy he's associate professor at yale university school of public health yeah i know the guy he says that uh, envigas calorie burning claims are based on insufficient research it's putting market hype ahead of science and he further says that the science here is not ready for prime time. There's a hint in animal research and in very early studies that, that this uh, EGCG can boost metabolism a little bit, but we don't know if that contributes to weight control. And then I think, Steve, you mentioned uh, just a moment ago that also worrisome is the amount of caffeine that you're going to be ingesting. That's right. th- that's 300 calories. I mean, if you drink the three cans like they recommend, that's 300 milligrams of caffeine, and that can... In- could potentially increase um, uh, metabolisms, it says here, to dangerous levels. The caffeine intake of 300 milligrams per day is a level that can cause jitteriness, elevated heart rate, anxiety. And this is a quote from uh, Leslie Bonsi, or Bonsai, a director of sports nutrition at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. So my advice is don't count on anything like Invega to help you lose weight. Just eat less and move more, yeah. bottom line. That's the classic. Does, does, does anybody remember Jolt Cola? Oh yeah! All the sugar and twice oh, yeah, the caffeine. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really, that, that's how they used to advertise it in the eighties. Yep. I heard stories of people making coffee with jolt with uh, with not the jolt cold, but with caffeinated water when that was uh, when that was popular. Can you imagine oh, coffee man. with caffeinated water together? <laughs> nice. Did you say that there were three hundred milligrams of caffeine in one can, or three in cans. the three cans? Uh, it's a hundred. It's a hundred milligrams per can. Three hundred for the suggested. Uh, you know, three cans that they that they recommend you drink a day. Okay, because I mean that's on the cusp. I mean, three hundred milligrams of caffeine a day isn't going to kill you. It's like no, three or four cups of coffee, basically. Yeah, well, th- at least what the, this director of sports nutrition is saying that it could cause jitteriness and elevated heart rate yeah, and anxiety. It could. But, but I mean, I I can picture people drinking four and five cans of this. You know, hey, negative calories. I'll just sit on this couch all day and drink five <laughs> cans of this. Well, yeah, and then, of course, obviously. I'll have my, my cake and, and everything else. <laughs> right. And speaking of weight loss, uh, of hype and gimmicks, the, uh, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, uh, recently fined um, several different makers of weight loss products $25 million, that was collectively, for making um, false or misleading claims in their advertising. Now, again, in the United States, 
1994, uh, Congress passed a law which basically took supplements out of the control of the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. And so basically they could market it to the public without the need for any uh, uh, evidence of safety or effectiveness. But that put it in the hands of the FTC to say, but if they actually commit advertising or commercial fraud in their advertising, the Federal Trade Commission could still go after them after the fact. Um, So it's not a a perfect system, but uh, at least there are some mechanisms in place by which to to rein in these companies. But it it amounts to a slap on the wrist, given this is a multi-billion dollar industry essentially built upon false claims. You know, a $25 million fine every now and then is the cost of doing business. It's not really, you know, inhibiting the market at all. Um, but they're they're doing their best. I mean, they are tr- the FTC is trying to uh, to crack down on these companies. So some of these companies, you know, these as you were talking about with Invega, you can make these pseudo health claims. It encourages your body to burn calories, which is not the same thing as saying that it treats obesity. If you say that, then you're saying it's treating a disease, and that's where the FDA gets involved. So some of these companies were were making claims about osteoporosis and Alzheimer's disease, even suggesting that it might you know help you fight off cancer, and that's where the FDC came in. But sometimes it was just you know making the claim that it will um, you know based upon testimonials without any signs to back it up that it uh, that it will definitely you know cause you to lose weight. So the the bottom line is with all of these products is and again I, I I'm not as familiar with the regulations in other countries other than the United States. I know that Australia actually has quite good regulations in in this arena. Uh, Europe is better than the U.S. in some ways and worse in other ways. It's not perfect anywhere. So it's unfortunately up to the consumer basically to be skeptical of all these claims. In the U.S., until the Congress passes the Supplemental Safety Act, which is a long-languishing Supplemental Safety Act, uh, then we're going to be at their mercy. Everything else is intrigue. You have to pass that bill. Have you guys heard about uh, Stephen Hawking's latest plans? Yeah. So now he, yes. <laughs> he Stephen, wants, Stephen, he's really into this. Yeah. So he, Stephen Hawking, who is a uh, the the British physicist who has suffered from motor neuron disease for a, a very long time, uh, now plans to go to space. He wants to go up into space. Bam! Right to the moon. <laughs> he was <laughs> well, going to orbit first. Yeah, uh, he's planning a zero gravity flight this year. So there's a uh, you know you can there are these planes that NASA uses to um, train astronauts for zero gravity, and they are they're called the vomit comet. The vomit yeah. comet. Right? <laughs> it basically flies in a parabolic arc, and that causes you know as it's in that arc. It's not accelerating. It's basically in free fall for minutes at a time. Uh, that long? I don't think it's quite that I think long. You get, I think you get 90 seconds. 90 seconds. Some, minute yeah, and a half. I, I think Something that's like off that. the top of my head. Is that how they filmed the movie Apollo 13 I, with those, absolutely. With those weightless they scenes? Did. They did. What, yeah. a, what a great idea that was. Wow. That's a good movie. It's uh, that, that plane gives you weightlessness for about 25 seconds. Is that it? Just 25 seconds? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's not that long. It's about 25 seconds. I'm reading it. If you, right. if you watch that movie, you, you won't see any scenes when they're floating that are longer than about that, that time. Yeah, that's right. They had to film it at 25 seconds at a time, I guess. <laughs> yeah. uh, so he's, really? plan- he's planning that this year, and then he wants to go to space in 2009, which, uh, you know, th- we were talking about this before. Th- that uh, Physically, I just you wonder if he's going to be able to take it. You know, it's Yeah, that, that's, that's what occurred to me. I mean, don't you need a certain you know level of 
certain amount of muscle tone to actually, you know, do well in that vomit Resist comet? Is the forces? Well, it's the acceleration. Yeah, hurled I mean, into space. You I mean, know, three, four, five Gs is a you know a lot of a lot says, of. Says uh, it's exactly forty-five degrees. It goes up forty-five over the top, down forty-five, and it does that forty to sixty times each time it goes up, and that results yeah, okay. in twenty-five seconds of weightlessness each time it does that. I would Wonderful. love to do that. Can you imagine twenty-five seconds? Actually, I have experienced that. That is my, my pretty guess awesome. Is that, is that he'll go unconscious? Well, that's that's usually what happens if you're not physically able to stand it. The, basically, you can't get the blood pressure up to your brain, and you fall unconscious. If that, flight if that's suits help with that. I mean, flight yeah. suits actually you know produce pressure, counter pressure, you know, around your tissues. Uh, it's actually really simple. I mean, the ba- the most basic concept of a flight suit is that there's water in there, fluid, and or something something fluid, and, and right. that as the, the g forces push that fluid down, which which produces a counter force to 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 keep your your fluids, the pressure inside your body up so that you can maintain your perfusion pressure. Right. The key is to keep the blood in your brain and not have it sink down to your lower extremities. That's a minimum of uh, 16 minutes of weightlessness on each flight. That's a lot. That's, that's wicked. Yeah. Yeah. That's I tell you, though, I, <laughs> okay. I, I experienced weightlessness extended uh, when I jumped out of that plane, and uh, people think that, uh, you know, when, you, when you're weightless momentarily, say, on a roller coaster, you get that kind of funny feeling in your stomach, but that, that goes away after, you know, after a few seconds, that, that does go away, and it's, yeah. that, was, that was an incredible, that was the most exhilarating thing I've ever done. You, you went skydiving, I assume? Yeah. You weren't trying to commit suicide. <laughs> no, it was, well, it was a failed suicide attempt, but I still <laughs> enjoyed the trip down. It was, he was a fighting a Russian spy in in, in <laughs> plane in the 1980s, and they both fell out. And well, the rest the rest explains itself. A lot of people, though, on that note, you 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 might not realize it, but you can actually take a flight, a zero g flight. It costs like five grand or something, and they'll take you up, and you can. That seems reasonable. Yeah, I mean, if I had five grand laying around, I'd be up <laughs> on, there. on the on the vomit comet itself, or some other plane. I don't know. Is the vomit comet a trademarked? No, it's a company called Incredible <laughs> Adventures that does it. There, yeah, there are a couple of you, yeah, probably a couple. That. If you just Google zero G, you know, right. you can probably find it. Well, I also went on a um, a glider. You know, they uh, they tow you up in a glider with no engine. It's these really oh, long yeah. wings, and uh, we did some acrobatic maneuvers that um, that you know where I experienced zero G, zero G as well, and that was that was quite a trip. That's like yeah. the most incredible roller coaster you could imagine. This company charges fifty five hundred for a single flight. Oh wow! Some first class tickets are more than that. Yeah, it's you know, true. First class ticket to Japan is probably. It's more true. Than that. Shop around. Hey. I found one for forty five hundred. There you go. There you go. Now, now, do you take off and land in the same airport? Because if you like had to travel to Japan, you could go on the vomit <laughs> comet and kill two birds. I don't think they like stone. to load a lot of Ooh. luggage on there. <laughs> <laughs> so they tend to shift at during flight. <laughs> also, for this one, you got to go to Moscow. Ah, no, yeah. Moscow. <laughs> this no, one Russia. leaves from Fort Lauderdale. So there you, you go. The J Ref. You can visit the J Ref and then go on your. Can you pay as you, you, pay as you exit? <laughs> <laughs> you, pay, you, you leave something behind. All right, let's go on to your emails. We first have a couple of corrections and clarifications. One's not actually, it turns out a correction. But first, this one comes from William Brinkman, who just gives his location as the United States. And William writes, 
The 900-foot Jesus was seen by Reverend Oral Roberts in the 1980s. He believed that if he didn't raise enough money, that Jesus would take him away. Unfortunately, he raised the money he needed, and we'll never know if Jesus would have taken him away. So this is in response to our discussion last week. I think it was Jay who says it. We were talking about Pat Robertson, and, and Jay asked, well, wasn't that the guy, the, the, the televangelist who said he saw a 900-foot Jesus? But a few people wrote in to correct us that it was, in fact, Oral Roberts, not yeah, Pat Robertson. Yeah, I thought it was Pat as well. Well, the Thank Roberts you for the correction. The yep, <laughs> thanks for the I correction. I think Rebecca called him a jackass, so I think you owe him an apology. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Say, uh, repeat after me. I apologize. Go ahead. The other correction, again, I got a few of these. Uh, I'm going to read you one. This was sent in by Jason Rawl. This is in re- response to kind of a side discussion we had about capsaicin. And he writes, I've really enjoyed your show over the last year and a half. It just seems to be getting better every show. Well, thanks. Quite right. However, however I believe that you may be misinformed, at least partially, on the action of capsaicin. There are receptors in primary sensory nerves that are sensitive to capsaicin called TRPV1. The sense of pain from hot peppers is not due to death of neurons. And then he gives a, a couple of links to substantiate this. So, uh, Jason and the others who wrote basically the same thing and are, and a lot of people actually reference the same Wikipedia entry. So I think a lot of people are deriving their information from that. That that is, you know, true as far as it goes. That the uh, the capsaicin molecule does bind to receptors, which can cause pain. Um, and then downgrading those receptors over time is at least partially re- responsible for the uh, the decrease in pain, that, which is the therapeutic effect that for which capsaicin is used. However, that's not the whole story. There, there are, um, and I'll, I'll have a, uh, I actually couldn't get an actual link, but I have the full reference to an article, uh, and there are, there are several which have established this in the last seven or eight years, that capsaicin actually does uh, c- cause the death of neurons, and that, of sensory neurons, and that this is at least partially the cause of both the pain uh, when when it's acutely experienced, and also the chronic um, sensory loss or pain loss downstream. So, bo- you know, both are true. It is partly from death of neurons. It's partly due to the immediate binding on on these receptors. So, Steve, are you going to update the Wikipedia entry on that? Yeah, maybe I will. Oh. I'll, uh, that's a good point. I'll I'll add that reference to it because that is a little bit uh, out of date. Don't forget to mention so. the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just slip that into the article. Yeah, on in. <laughs> we had a lot of other responses to this. Is not so much of a a, um, a correction as just other people weighing in on our moon debate last oh, week. Oh man, they wouldn't no. shut up about it. I know, <laughs> really. It's not a debate. Oh. And they were <laughs> almost all entirely on my side. They were. There like were a lot of drunks out there. It was, a lot of lushes. <laughs> embarrassing for you guys. A lot of lushes. I have to observe that the 100% of the emails that we got said that Rebecca was the sole person to defend the notion that it's easy to misidentify the moon, when in fact I also took that position. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting that everybody missed that who wrote an email on it. Interesting. <laughs> All right, well, I this think I one, was just the rabid one. <laughs> I guess so. Here, this one comes from Steve Hammond in Scotland. I think this is our is this our first Scotland email that we're reading on the I air? don't think so. No. We've had others. It can't be. It can't we're, be. All right, he writes, big in hi, guys. Oh, he's a, he's, he writes, oh. hi, guys. Only <laughs> a baboon could mistake the moon for a UFO, huh? Yeah. Well, I'm delighted to be able to supply solid video evidence against this outrageous notion. Being able to back up Rebecca, too, just makes it all the sweeter. 
She ate <laughs> right, right there. <laughs> oh, come on. There's the right folk. Steve, you can stop. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Ah. Right, keep going. He says, you see, a number of years ago, 2002, I think, I was intending to film the moon as it rose above the River Tay in Scotland for a small movie project known as Being Bored in Charge of a Video Camera. And <laughs> what he said, when I filmed this, and he gives a link, which, of course, will be on the notes page. I didn't think I was going to get anything at all because of the clouds, but a small break in the cloud did indeed appear at the right time. Now, because the clouds were appearing in streaks, only the center portion of the moon was visible. Chopping the top and bottom of the, off the moon meant that only a rectangular portion in the middle was actually visible. And because there was evidently a large amount of dust in the atmosphere at the time, the result was bright red. The whole apparition lasted a few minutes. Now, I know full well that this was the moon. I'd planned for it at that place in that time using some astronomy software. I'd defy anyone to have casually glanced at this apparently bright red rectangle hovering over the river for a minute and immediately thought of the moon. It says, anyways, thanks for the podcast, which keep me entertained on my walks to work in the morning. He also says, P.S., always amusing when someone across the pond attempts a Scottish <laughs> accent. Uh, <laughs> so let's never do that again. Die. Hey, laddie. All right. <laughs> oh. But a runda gulf. His, that video was really amazing. It, if ever the the moon did not look like the moon, it was in his video. That's it true. I mean, I looked weird. at it. It was. It is this. It is this red rectangle, streaky kind yeah, of red rectangle. Very, it's cool. very So I mean, I, I, you guys were wrong on this one. You really do. Well, have no, to hang on, hang on. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> jump in right here. Please we're do. talking about, we're talking about compare mistaking the moon for a UFO, not for something. Not for, uh, not no, for actually, airplane, not for, not for something else. You guys We're also talking. said that it, it's insane that anybody could look at the moon and not know immediately that it's the moon. You weren't just saying that it's crazy that people are immediately thinking that it's a UFO. I'll go back and listen to myself and see if I said that. I don't think I well, said yeah, that. Well, yeah, but there are, Richard, there are two parts to this. One is recognizing it as the moon. The other one is saying, I can't recognize that, therefore it's a UFO. So I think we can all agree that the leap to a UFO is, is gullible, not skeptical, and naive. But yes. just not being able to recognize that it's the moon is not as amazing as it may seem. In fact, I, I dug and dug and I could not find this reference, but I read about a year ago an article by a female astronomer. If anybody is, is familiar with this, please send me the reference. I couldn't dig it up. But this is an astronomer who related an experience where she failed to identify the moon in the sky because of the unusual uh, viewing conditions. Well, Steve, I'm not sure if this is, I'm not sure if this is what you mean, but um, Dr. Jill Tarter, the director of SETI, uh, actually yeah, admitted. that's it. I think that's it. Is that what I you're think thinking of? Yeah. yeah, she was on an ABC special on UFOs, and she admitted that she was on a nighttime plane uh, plane ride, and she and her husband looked out the window and observed a large bright light, and they said, this is incredible. What are we even seeing? And eventually figured out that it was the moon. Now, Rebecca, yes. how long part. had the two of you been drinking together that night? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just curious. It was uh, two hours, three. That was clever. I was well, I, I saw what you just did there. That, was that was really blind, drunk, well, pseudo look, that drunk. Rebecca, she did, she did in fact, though, conclude that it was the moon at some point. Yeah. Yes, yeah. but her but first the point thought is, was, what is that? Is that a UFO? Right. <laughs> oh. Look, that's her anecdote. I'll give you my anecdote. I, talking, if, we're talking about anecdotes. That's the whole point of the discussion is anecdotes. <laughs> okay, well, 
if I'm looking up at the sky and I see a light that I can't identify, and it's not obviously the moon, one of the first thoughts that races through my mind is, gee, could that be the moon? Let me try to take a closer look, because the moon is the second most recognizable object in the sky next to the sun during the daytime. Well, congratulations. I, <laughs> well, thank you. But my... <laughs> You mean that big bright one over there? That's the moon donkey. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, I'm not getting your, your nerd Please. stuff. <laughs> Thank that you. was uh Thank you. Shrek. Explain that your nerd Shrek. reference. <laughs> Thank you. Shrek. Shrek. Okay. Ah. Come on. Listen, Come I think on. the only point the only point is you may you may have underestimated the degree to which the moon could look very odd and that people might not directly. What did P. T. Barnum say about all, the public? <laughs> but we all agree. That it's it's not appropriate to leap to the conclusion that something that you can't identify is a UFO because it could be the whole point. Is it could be the it could be the moon. It could be Venus. It could be something you know an unusual viewing condition of something astronomical. All right, let's go on to the next one. This one comes from Christian Paulson Brown in Perth, Australia, and he writes, "Hey, you guys, non-gender specific from where I'm from." Let me begin by saying that not only is your podcast numero uno, in my opinion, but that you are, without a doubt, the greatest collective of skeptic minds that I have been exposed to in my lifetime. Goes without, without a doubt, saying. Say. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Until that uh, moon discussion. Right, right. Sorry, go on. <laughs> I, think, I actually think he's damning us with faint praise, but anyway. He says, my question for you, however, is about not-so-skeptical beliefs that you may have held previously in your lifetime. Are there any mm-hmm. major pseudoscientific or true-believer-style notions that you have given credence to or abruptly believed yourselves in the past? Come on, guys, be honest, and I'm not talking about Santa Claus-esque fantasies. Were any of you believers in psychics, dowsing, extraterrestrials, visitations, ESP, etc.? So... Who's going to fess up first? You know, it. of course, it all depends. Now, he, he did rule out, okay, Santa Claus at five. Fine. Yeah. But, you know, what age are we talking about? When I was a teenager, I, I think I've already stated on this program, I used to watch Stupid in Search of with, <laughs> you know, Mr. Spock. Spock. And I, uh, I believe the line, Bigfoot, UFOs, all that crap. I believed in it. And then maybe when I was, oh, I don't know, 20 or so, out the window. Okay. And, in a, and in a big heap, you know, it all went out together quick. With me, it probably started with religion. That one I chucked early on. Um, and then and then the rest quickly, quickly went after that. But, you know, when I was a teenager, I believed in all kinds of crap. So there That's you what go. being a teenager is for. Right. Believing in a bunch of crap. Well, my experience is kind of similar to Perry's. Um and um you know, in which I in which I did. I was brought up in a in a Jewish household, you know, Jewish customs and rituals, bar mitzvah, the whole thing. Uh certainly that was leading up to my thirteenth birthday and certainly as I was a teenager I believed in just about every pseudoscientific and fantastic notion out there. And I don't know. I guess I kind of blame that on myself for not uh, for not grasping the science education uh, during my formative high school years when I when I really should have. I should have cracked harder on my science education, I think, and maybe it would have saved me sooner. Um, but in any case, uh, when I was done with college, I uh, found skepticism thanks to the help of Doctor Novella, and here I am. I believed in in things like uh, naturopathy. Just I'd say like. Four or five years ago, I guess. You're young, Rebecca. 
Uh, you're still am. a youngin, yeah. Seriously. I'm 26. So compared to the rest was... of compared to the rest of us, you are a whippersnapper. <laughs> I, I think I was I was beyond the the <laughs> standard age for throwing all the junk out the window, though, because I had already gotten rid of the religion and the the obvious. Was that because stuff. Rebecca? Was that because you just didn't know what it was really about? Naturopathy, or was it? Did we really harboring some pseudoscientific beliefs? I could say that about homeopathy that I I thought that worked just because I didn't know what it was about. <clears throat> but um, oh, naturopathy, <laughs> I I really thought that um, science doesn't know everything. <laughs> Western medicine can't <laughs> solve yeah. everything, and sometimes you need to eat an herb, and then you'll be fine. <laughs> Um, I, I I honestly believe that. I find that that is the last holdout of a lot of skeptics. Uh, a lot of people who are yeah. even otherwise skeptical, just the, the the notion of natural medicine is so appealing that that they they adhere to that. And also the um, the neg- negative sort of conspiracy thinking about the medical establishment is also and just so common, even among skeptics, that it's, it's yeah, and also the it's, last holdout. I think it's one of the last things because um, it's you know it has a real basis in 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 fact like there are you know certain plants from which we derive certain medicines and it, so it's it almost makes a kind of sense like I, well I, maybe maybe medicine just hasn't figured out how to properly use this plant yet i mean it happens all, all the time we find some new thing that we can transform into pill form um right. so you know it's it's within the realm of possibility that there's something out there that we can eat that will make us feel better but uh, you kind of forget about all the side effects. The law that of infinitesimals the, and all the rest of it. With the fact that, the yeah, it won't be, the, the dosage won't be worth it, you know, all that I'll tell you, though, when I was younger, I used to think, I used to generally accept that uh, the road to skepticism, uh, you know, which is paved with a lot of, I mean, I, I don't know anyone who's 10 and is a skeptic. Maybe they're out there, but I don't know them. So you have to you have to undergo some changes to get here. But I used to think that the last give and the toughest give was always religion. But as I get older, I don't think that's the case. I think it's up there. I mean, it was one of the last things to go for me. It was for the novellas. I know. You, Steve has said the same thing. Uh, but I think, for, you know, as I get older, I mean, it's so emotional. You know, I think once people, like, there's a crack... It explodes, you know, and they and they cast it aside very quickly. I think well, it, was, it can be ingrained at a very young age, and those are always going to be the hardest things to get rid of. If depends on what your path is. I think a lot of people have taken different paths to being uh, non-believers. Some people have had a negative experience with religion, and they reject that first because of their experience with it. Right. Uh, I think you know I had the opposite experience where I had a very positive experience. You know, Bob and I and, and Jay were all raised Catholic. It was very low key. You know, it was nothing fanatical or weird, and it was just part of our culture and our family. And it was generally a positive experience. And, but um, I wouldn't say though, Steve. I would not say that we were ex- very religious. Not even no, not even never. going we to church very... every week. I mean, no. just you know, every now and then. It was very uh, modest. It was it was just part right. of the, the background fabric of our of our culture and our family but uh and it all it, but it, to a degree it was part of our identity and of your italian heritage 
and of our Italian heritage. Right. Yeah, we we came to skepticism through our love of science. For me, the, the the first real skeptical issue for me was creationism, and that's when I learned the extent to which people could deceive themselves and can wrap their minds up in logical fallacies, and that you know led me that's on a path key. of uh, that was key. It led me on a path of you know subjecting the same sort of criteria and understanding to, to all everything, and that's where all the in search of beliefs went out the window, like Bigfoot, ESP, and UFOs. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Uh, Aww, and then, then you, then, you know, then you apply it to you know religious beliefs, and and that goes away over time as well. But it just it did take longer because you know because you can retreat to things like you know faith, which is not based on evidence or science. Um, you could make it into more of a moral thing or a cultural thing. There's you know lots. It has a lot more hooks in you than just a, a factual yeah. belief. A, a very close friend of mine. Uh... Who is a, is a, is a fairly sound skeptic now? His last give was religion, and he said basically it's because he was taught that if you weren't religious, you were a quote bad person, and, right. and he didn't he didn't want to identify with being a bad person. That was tough. Plus, atheists are I mean, atheists are re- pretty much reviled. I mean, they're like the the last holdout. You will see. You will see. I, my prediction is that you will see. Almost anyone could be elected president. I don't care you name any minority. They they will be they will be elected as president before an atheist will possibly yeah. be elected. Every I've recently heard about a study. They um, they polled a lot of minority groups and uh, and and regular people and. Everybody was down on atheists. Everybody. Yeah. yeah, we will. We will have a gay black Jewish woman before we have an atheist <laughs> in the office. It's true. Just, that's what the polling data shows. Yeah, that's that's like the last minority that it's that it's like acceptable to to be prejudiced or bigoted against. Um, you so. know, real quick, Perry mentioned uh, earlier that he he's never heard of a ten year old skeptic. Can I just ask our listeners? If you know a ten year old skeptic, if you are a ten year old skeptic, can you write in? Because I'd like to hear from you. Absolutely. I, I'd, I'd, like to, Absolutely. I'd like to see if Perry's... Oh, yeah. Perry doesn't have kids, so I think that number's a little bit high. <laughs> That's true. You know, right. I th- you know, for for true. me, I would say like seven or eight is the point at which you know they could actually start doing some real reality testing. And, right. And, All right, let's hear from the sort young of obligate, skeptic yeah. in our I, audience. I've heard, Ran- I've heard Randy say in interviews before he was ten, about 10 years old when he abandoned... It's impressive. Yeah. Can you imagine and, little ten-year-old uh, skeptic Randy Jr. Uh, Randall's? <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, my 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 experience Swish. is my my, my seven-year-old daughter Thanks. Julia is is in love with science already, and she's quite skeptical in her attitude. She knows that Bigfoot doesn't exist and that people fool themselves, but she still will engage freely in fantasy thinking. Yeah, that's know, what I just said. Right? Wasn't it you who yeah. very recently said that no matter what you think is going on? The kid is in their own fantasy world. They are because those two things exist side by side at that age. Okay, they they, right. can, they can rationalize things, but they still have these active fantasy lives that are real to them. She still totally believes in Santa Claus, and it, there's no she has no problem with maintaining those side by side. So I, I and uh, I don't know. I, so that's my oldest, you know, child is seven. So I don't have. You know, intimate experience older than that, but it, but the, the conventional wisdom is that seven is when you start to get more of an adult type of of reality testing in place. So, sorry, I just wanted to relate one uh, one of my favorite quotes of my daughter when she was six. It it just it literally made my year uh, <laughs> when she uh, she came out with this quote out of the blue, un- unprompted by me. I was putting her to bed, and uh, just I don't know where it came from, but she said, "I don't want to be Christian anymore." 
how you know where how you know how does how could God make the earth and and what was most insightful oh I thought was was her quote she said what about God's parents and their parents you know what about them and I thought for a six year old I thought that was pretty damn good I mean when I was six years oh, old I, that never even occurred to me to think you might how, you might how win could the not... awesome awesome young skeptic contest right that there was, the so listeners just... might not even bother writing in now right because, like, just take it. Did you take a page out of Randy's book and respond to her? Which <laughs> yeah, right. Zeus. That was good enough. Believe me, that was good enough. Really good enough. But no, still, you know, that's, that's a good point, though. Have our listeners, tell, give us your anecdotes about the, the youngest real skeptic that you know of. Please. Yeah, please. Well, let's go on to our interview. Joining us now is Dr. Spencer Wirt. Spencer, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Hi, glad to be here. Uh, Dr. Wirt is the author of the book, The Discovery of Global Warming. He's also the director of the Center for History of Physics of the American Institute of Physics in College Park, Maryland. Uh, and he is the author of the website uh, aip.org slash history slash climate, which has a lot more information about climate change, what, the topic that we'll be talking about tonight. And, of course, all this information will be on our notes page. So, Spencer, just to get us started, can you give us an, an overview of where you think the science of global warming is today? Well, it's, it's curious because this is almost the opposite of the situation you normally cover on these podcasts. Uh, in this case, the really weird stuff, the stuff that's hard to believe and bizarre and so on, is what the entire scientific community believes. People who are saying, no, no, everything's normal, you guys are crazy, uh, you're just doing it for the money and so on, are the small group of sort of outsiders. So the kind of the relationship between the scientific community and the crackpots has been reversed because the entire scientific community now is convinced that very strange and unexpected, you know, uh, what would have been unexpected things are happening. And science is very straightforward. Uh, we're putting fossil fuel gases and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere the world is getting warmer. We're putting up more gases, and the world is going to continue to get warmer. Simple as that. Yeah, so, so you, the skeptics are the crackpots in, when it comes to global warming, is what you're saying. And we, we have to say now that you can't even call them skeptics anymore. You have to call them denialists or contrarians or whatever. You know, there, there, there are skeptics in the scientific community, and the skeptics in the scientific community are saying, well, maybe it's just a bad risk and not a terrible risk. Just to sort of establish the baseline here, it seems to me that no one, not even um, the global warming skeptics or deniers, are saying that the Earth isn't warming. That everyone that, that's you know, measurable and pretty well established that we are in a period of, of warming. In fact, it, that that's that's right. Uh, until about five years or so ago, uh, they denied that. But by now, you know, you can just walk outside. I saw. I'm in Washington now, and I was up in New York a few days ago, and in both places I saw cherry trees blooming. Okay, you just can't deny that's that right. anymore. It's there. Yeah, I heard about that. In, in 2006 is the warmest year on record. Uh, for the United States, yes. Yeah, the second warmest the in the globe States. as a whole. Second? Well, it, it about ties with the warmest. It's about a tie. It might be slightly behind the warmest. When was the warmest? All, the, the last 10 years have all been among the, you know, the 25 warmest since records ah. began. I, I've also heard, again, even those who deny global warming say that 
um, human activity is contributing to it. So it seems that their their position at this point is that it's only contributing to it a small and insignificant amount. Do you think that's is that your sense? Well, or that they say, well, we can't be sure that it's contributing. Well, there's there's a, there's a couple of denialist views. One is to say, well, it might be all part of a natural climate cycle. You don't know. Uh, maybe it's contributing. Maybe it's not. We just don't know. And the other viewpoint that some people have is, well, yeah, and warming is good for you. We like the warming. Right. So they're saying, yes, it's warming. Yes, we're causing it, but it's not a bad thing. Or we don't know if it's a bad thing or not. Yeah, they're, they're, they're denying the predictions of serious consequences, serious adverse consequences. So those are the kind of the two viewpoints. And I, I, I must say the ones who deny there are serious adverse consequences are really a minority of the minority. Mm-hmm. But so the, the, the mainstream among the denialists is to say, well, it's all too uncertain, you know. How, how do you know? We don't know anything about it. The climate is so uncertain. How can you? You can't even predict the weather two days ahead. That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that there are any points on their side that are legitimate, or do you? Or put another way, are any of the people, any of the scientists, or the politicians who are beating the drum of concern over global warming, are they overstating the case in any way, as far as you know? Oh yeah, certainly um, many people are overstating the case. That, that is, if you take the mainstream scientific view, they will say that well, some of these people are just going too far and saying that it's urgent, it's terrible, it's a disaster. We have to take steps at once. Lots of scientists will say, well, it, it, it's, it's probably not that bad. Uh, I think also, you know, the, the, the denialists have a point in that climate is uncertain. And the mainstream view of scientists says, yeah, we're not really sure. The, the climate system is very complicated. Computer models are not completely pinned down yet. Uh, we might be really, really lucky, and it won't really warm much at all. Stuff could kick in that we don't know about, and maybe we'll really luck out. On the other hand, maybe we'll be unlucky, and it's just as likely this stuff will kick in and things will be much worse than is predicted. Right. So the denialists have a point in that there's a lot of uncertainty, but, but the problem is that if you're uncertain, uh, does that mean you do nothing? I mean, you know, uh, I don't know whether my house is going to burn down. In fact, it probably won't, but I'm still going to pay something for life insur- uh, for uh, fire insurance. And in this case, it's like they're saying, well, there's a 50% chance your house is going to catch fire at some point. So you're going to buy fire insurance? Right. So it, 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 there's uncertainty, but it could be worse than projections as, just as easily as it could be, could be better than projections. The current consensus projection is from 1 to 5 degrees centigrade warming. So 1 degree is not so bad. And, you know, maybe we'll be really lucky and it's actually 0 degrees. On the other hand, 5 degrees centigrade, which is about 8 degrees Fahrenheit, is really bad. And there's a significant chance it'll be even worse than that, which would be just complete disaster. And I'm just talking like the end of the century. I'm not even talking about our grandchildren's time. I'm talking about our children's time. Yeah, so that one to five is over the next hundred years. That's right. Uh-huh. Or maybe even 70 years. I mean, the, the one to five is for doubling of the carbon dioxide, and that will happen before the end of this century. We're not even talking about the year uh, 2100. We're talking about maybe 2080 or 2090. I mean, our children will still be yeah. alive. What what are the assumptions in that projection? Is that um, at our current rate of carbon production, or does that also include in the projections for the increase? Uh, the biggest uncertainty in the whole thing is what we will do about it. You know, that's that's assuming not even the business as usual, which is you know exponential increase. That's assuming that we'll you know take modest steps. You know, if people just you know if the Chinese just go madly ahead and burn all their coal and so on, then it'll even be worse than that. On the other hand, if we take strong steps, then we can hit the lower limit. 
And that, that's really the biggest uncertainty is what are we going to do? Now, there, there are those who are saying that it's probably already too late. Uh, do, you, do you find yourself in that camp, or do you think that we have time to, to make corrections? Well, it is too late to avoid any warming. The warming is here. And not only that, but there's about a 20-year delay built into the system because the oceans are cold and it takes a long time to warm them up. So we've already, with the gases, if we stopped emitting gases now, if everybody just shut down, the world is still going to get somewhat warmer. It can't be avoided. But it's not too late to prevent the worst consequences. I mean, if we just keep on producing as we are for the next century, then the consequences will be terrible. And uh, it's certainly not too late to stop that. We can take steps that will probably, if we're not too unlucky, will avoid having you know, real disaster. So can you summarize quickly for us the, the one or two main lines of evidence that tell us that the current period of warming that we're experiencing is man-made or due to so-called forcing of, of the environment from man-made factors? Well, not really, because there's one of the problems which has uh, made that it takes such a long time to realize this is that you can't really convince yourself unless you look at a lot of different lines of evidence. Any one of them won't convince you, and it's kind of the convergence of a whole bunch of different ones that brings it together. But I think for many scientists, the most convincing thing came along uh, about 10 years, 10, 20 years ago, uh, this heroic effort of the Soviets and some others to drill down through the Antarctic ice core, two kilometers down, three, four kilometers, uh, and extracted ice that goes back not just through the last glacial cycle, but through the last four glacial cycles, over 400,000 years. And they found that carbon dioxide and temperature just went up and down in steps. So it's clear that the carbon dioxide and the temperature system are very intimately interconnected. And I think that was perhaps the most convincing line of evidence. But, of course, that came along, by the time that came along, most scientists were already convinced because of other kinds of evidence. Uh, have you seen the movie An Inconvenient Truth, by the way? Yeah, uh-huh. Actually, I saw Al Gore give this talk many years ago. He's been giving this talk for a long time. I saw him give it when he was just giving it with slides. Yeah, you saw his slideshow before it was a movie. We, we get a lot of questions about this, so what's your opinion? How, how's his science in that in that presentation, in that show? I, I think, and I think this is, again, the view that you'll find. If people who are interested in this should look at a blog called Real Climate, one word, realclimate.org, which is a blog put together by real climate scientists. And their conclusion, which I agree with, is that he has the science mostly right, but He's a, a little, goes a little beyond, not explicitly, but when he shows Hurricane Katrina, he doesn't say it, but he kind of implies that we know that this was caused by global warming, and we don't. Uh, and uh, he shows the sea levels rising, and he doesn't say how fast that'll come. One of these pictures of sea level rising is very dramatic, but uh, that's not going to happen for 100 or 200 years. So without saying it explicitly, the pictures he shows uh, present a somewhat more alarmist picture. Uh, and, and some people think that this is dangerous because it makes people think, you know, oh, it's a horrible thing, you know, they sort of bury their head in the sand, nothing we can do about it. Whereas it's not, you know, these terrible things he shows are 100, 200 years off, we have time to do something about them. But that's the only, that's the only objection people have to it. Yeah, everything else in there is absolutely solid. Right, right. Plus, if you oversell it, you kind of give ammunition to the critics. That's what people worry about. And there are other people who say, well, you know, the only thing that will wake up the public is to hit them over the head with a two-by-four twice. And do you agree with that? Do you think that overall this was a, Al Gore's movie is a benefit? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it has obviously woken up a lot of people. People have been very impressed by it. As I say, if I were to do it, I would have 
well, a little easier on some of the graphics, but different people will uh, be impressed with different things. I mean, on my own website, I try to be very um, objective and take kind of a scientific viewpoint, and that you know, without doing any kind of exaggeration at all, and that attracts a certain kind of people. And then there's other people who you have to show them drowning polar bears, and that's the only thing that will catch their attention. Sherman, I've been, uh, you know, obviously uh, following this and reading some articles uh, lately online, and uh, there are those that are saying that uh, global warming is at least partially um, due to the fact uh, of solar activity of one kind or another. How, how good is the science behind those reports? Well, this has been a very interesting development. And interest, incidentally, my original training was in solar physics, so I've been following this quite closely. And uh, up through the 1980s, this was the main denialist line, which was to say that, well, uh, the temperature has been increasing through the 20th century, and so has solar activity. In fact, they tracked pretty well, and that was, it was fairly convincing. And then uh, in around the 1980s, solar activity stopped increasing, and the temperature kept going up. So what people now think is that solar activity does have some effect on the climate, and it's maybe a 10% effect, a 30% effect. Uh, it's clear that, well, it's not clear, but it seems plausible some of the climate variations may have been due to solar variations. We're, we're not really sure because nobody can identify a mechanism why that should have happened, but there is some kind of correlation there. And it's also clear that even solar variations bigger than anything we have seen, you know, tracking back through as far as you can track, which is fairly far back with indirect methods, even the biggest solar variations become small compared with what we're doing to the climate system now. And in terms of just forcing, you can calculate, you know, how many watts of extra energy you get from adding so much greenhouse gases. And Sometime around the 1980s, we passed the point where that just greatly exceeds any effect you can get from the sun. So there will continue to be solar variations. They'll continue to cause climate fluctuations, but they'll just kind of be waves on the top of this big rising tide of the greenhouse warming. Now, another aspect of this whole debate has been um, how our current administration has handled it. Uh, obviously, our view just generically is that science and scientists should always be allowed to just go where the evidence and the logic takes them and that it should never be subjugated to a political agenda. There is a, there's a group I'm sure you're familiar with, the Union of Concerned Scientists, who have been, say, have been saying quite a bit recently that, um, that the Bush administration has been attempting to politically influence the reporting and the actual the, the conduct of, of climate science. What do, what do you feel about that? Oh, this has even been reported in the New York Times. They've found memos and it's very explicit, yeah. You can go to the Union of Concerned Scientists website and see reports where they, you know, reproduce actual memos from lobbying agencies and so forth. So it's, 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 not, it's not a question of one group saying it. It's just they've been, they and uh, Andy Revkin and other reporters of the New York Times have been very effective in bringing out fact the uh, current administration's efforts to deny certain scientific things. And incidentally, not only in the area of uh, global warming, uh, you know, uh, I don't think President Bush yet has said that he's convinced that uh, evolution, Darwinian evolution, is a fact. No, he hasn't, as far, we, as far as I, I've heard. So, you know, there's a whole book called The Republican War on Science. Well, I wouldn't say it's Republicans, I wouldn't say it's a war, but certainly the current administration has the worst relationship with the scientific community of any administration in American history by far. Yeah, that book, book was written by Chris Mooney, and we interviewed him mm -hmm. about a year ago. You know, we talked about a lot of these uh, these same same issues. 
But do you think, given both the political wins and the avalanche of scientific evidence, are, are they starting to come around? Is the, the Bush administration, they're, they're willing to say that, that global warming is real now? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In fact, it's in the news today that the uh, National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, the Weather Prediction Agency, which made news a few years ago when some of their bureaucrats attempted to stifle climate scientists, this, this same agency uh, just yesterday uh, morning, or, or this morning, I think, came out and said that 2006 was the warmest year on record in the uh, continental United States, one. Two, that this is part of a long-scale warming trend. And, and three, that this is linked to the admission of, this has been linked to the emission of you know, greenhouse gases. They just couldn't bring themselves to say it is linked. They kind of say, well, some people have linked it. But Bush himself has finally came out, I think, just a year ago and said uh, that, yes, the world's warming, and yes, uh, humans are partly responsible for it. So even Bush somehow managed to say it. That doesn't mean, of course, that they're willing to do anything about it. What do you think would be the most important thing or, or, or short list of things that we would need to do to reverse this trend? There are uh, any number of steps that people can take, and uh, the, the fact is we have to do a whole bunch of them. You, you, can, you have to take... In order to eat the pie, you have to do it one slice at a time. And you don't have to do everything, but there are uh, a number of steps that you have to take. They, uh, some of them are uh, cheap, and in fact, some of them are uh, make you money. The first thing to do, obviously, is to stop subsidizing it. Uh, the world spends, somebody estimated the world spends as a whole a quarter of a billion dollars to pay people to emit fossil fuels. These are the subsidies for uh uh, automobiles and for uh, oil and gas and coal and so forth. There's an enormous amount of money that we're paying these companies. So we can save a lot of money just by withdrawing these subsidies. Then we can also save a lot of money with uh, energy efficiency, famously. Well, I, as I speak, I'm doing it by the light of a fluorescent, uh, compact fluorescent bulb, which is going to save me money and also save greenhouse gases. But there's a lot of money we can save just by making things more efficient. And in terms of government activity, that would mean, for example, uh, fuel standards for cars. Uh, however, we have to do all this, and uh, that's that's free. That's fun, actually. But then there's some other things we have to do, which will actually cost us some money. You can either do it with regulation, or you can do it by taxes. But you you have to find some mechanism to encourage people to stop emitting so much greenhouse gases. Uh, or you can just put what they call a cap and trade system, where you sell the right to emit greenhouse gases. Uh, the U.S. government could just declare that there will be a lower limit on the price of gasoline. Then, after you do all that, and that's what we do now, then in the meantime, you have to spend a lot of money on search because none of that is enough. And by 10 or 20 years now, we have to have other things in place, like sequestering carbon dioxide that's emitted by coal-fired plants. We can do that now, but it's not very economical. If we spend enough money on research, then 20 or 30 years will be in you know, we, we have to start building the plants now so we can take advantage of it. You do research on solar panels, you do research on greater fuel efficiency, and so forth and so forth. Right, so we pretty much have to do everything. You didn't ask me about the denialists. I mean, you, you mainly deal with cranks on this show, right? Well, we deal, we deal with a lot of different things. We do deal with fringe and controversial science, but and some of these sort of politically controversial issues. And hey, let's talk okay, about well, it. Let's, but let's, well, let's to, talk about it. Yeah, let's go. It's important to realize where these denialists come from, uh, and, and they come uh, mainly from two places. Number one, there are people who do it for pay, and I am not afraid publicly to say that some of these people are simply dishonest. Uh, there is no question that some of them who are reputable scientists 
are consciously manipulating the data, uh, and that as they do this, they are in the pay of ExxonMobil and other companies. And the other group of people who do this are people who are so ideologically committed that they just can't believe anything that contradicts their ideology. These are people who have unfortunately come to see the greenhouse issue as something having to do with environmentalism. They associate environmentalism with government regulation. Uh, anything that requires government regulation has got to be wrong and bad and a hoax, and therefore they're just incapable of uh, evaluating the evidence. And so those are the two main classes of denialists. So they put their ideology ahead of the science, basically. Well, their ideology gets in the way of the science. They're incapable of seeing science that conflicts with their ideology. Well, Spencer, it was a pleasure having you on The Skeptic's Guide. We enjoyed speaking with you. Okay, anytime. My pleasure, indeed. Thanks for giving us your time. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Spencer. And now, Randy Speaks. Hello, this is James Randy. Today I'd like to talk to you a little bit about coincidence. I'm often asked about the subject. People say to me, how could you possibly explain? And then they give me some coincidence that they've experienced in their lives or, more frequently, that somebody else has told them about. My brief response to such an inquiry is that if a remarkable coincidence or two didn't happen to you every now and then, that in itself would be remarkable. But, as you well know, people just don't seem to understand statistics or probability. Many years ago, my good friend Martin Gardner told me about a column he had done for Scientific American, one of the regular columns that he supplied them with during his heyday, and this was an April 1st column. So they should have been ready for it, but readers really weren't. Martin introduced his fictitious character, at least one hopes fictitious, Dr. Matrix, and he told readers that during an interview with Dr. Matrix, he had been told that the millionth digit of pi was five. This fact had been arrived at by Dr. Matrix, or so he claimed, by numerology and astrology, a good combination, I'm sure you'll agree. Well, that column was published in Scientific American, and it caused the usual number of chuckles and also some silly letters saying, how do you do this by numerology and astrology, but we can bypass those. The really remarkable result was that a mathematician at MIT wrote to Martin a couple of years after the column had appeared and said, guess what? We put it into the computer, and lo and behold, the millionth digit of pi is five. What are the chances? Exactly one in ten. Of course, it depends on where you start counting places of decimals, after the three-point or beginning with the three. There are several possibilities of error and, uh, let's say, um, variations here. My paternal grandfather was very fond of telling me a story, not a personal story in this case, but one that he said had happened to a friend of his who worked at the same company where he did. This friend said that he rear-ended a car I believe they were both Fords. And when they exchanged pertinent information, they found out that, wow, the cars that had collided were in exactly the same relationship that they'd been on the assembly line many years before because the vehicle identification numbers were consecutive. 
Now, I don't know if this is true. I don't know if their granddad knew whether or not it was really true. But suppose for a moment that it was true. In the first place, cars even, aside from trucks or bicycles or motorcycles, were not specified when looking for this coincidence. Consecutive license plate numbers or driver's license numbers would have been equally acceptable, I'm sure, as a remarkable coincidence. So we have to consider that, again, if this was actually true, there are many possibilities for it to be true, because we haven't defined the parameters in advance. Recently, I made mention on Swift of the fact that many media personalities have fallen for the woo-woo stuff. Glenn Beck of CNN certainly fell for John Edwards' line of nonsense just recently. I pointed out that Katie Couric, formerly with the NBC Today show, accepted John Edward as well, and Diane Rehm of PBS, uh, NPR I should say more correctly, has certainly fallen for this sort of thing several times in her interviews. But during a repeat visit of Edwards to the NBC Today show while Katie Couric was there, he told her something really remarkable that she considered to be remarkable too. He said that during his previous appearance there, she had denied that she had a brother who had committed suicide, or some statement uh, equally pertinent. Edward revealed that he had done a bit of research. Parking his car a couple of months after that, he had been approached by a parking attendant who told him that Edward had obviously been picking up on his vibrations because his brother had committed suicide. And, said Edward, it was remarkable because... If you drew a direct line through Edward and Katie Couric to where the parking lot was half a mile away in Manhattan, it would come to just the place where this parking attendant was working. Folks, when you've got people believing crap like this, you don't have a hard time being a psychic. This is James Randi. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics and my listeners at home to tell me which one is the fake. The theme for this week is amazing science facts, and I have there are four items this week. I know you guys get okay, confused. Okay, one of them is fiction, right? Yeah, you get confused. <laughs> right? yes. One of the four is fiction. The other three are true yet amazing science facts. Ready? Amazing. Mm-hmm. Number one, men are struck by lightning four times as often as women. Item number two, since people have been putting artificial satellites into orbit, over 40 satellites have been damaged or destroyed by meteors. Item number three, the crack of a whip is made by the tip exceeding the speed of sound, causing a small sonic boom. And item number four, Russian scientists thawed out a salamander, they believe to have been frozen for 90 years, and it was still alive. Evan, why don't you go first? Um, men struck by lightning four times as likely as women. Well, are there four times as, as many men golfers as there are women golfers? <laughs> I guess would be the correlated statistic. Ah, <laughs> if it's not Scottish. Um, satellites, 40 of them have been struck by meteors. Reasonable crack of the whip breaking the sound barrier, 
And uh, the last one, Steve, Russian scientists have thought of fish that's 90 years old? Salamander. Sorry, salamander. They believe it was frozen for 90 years. I am going to say that 40 satellites being struck by meteors is fiction. Oh, it sounds cool. I think it's fiction. Okay. Perry? I agree with Evan. (laughs) Okay. Next. Bob? Let's see. One of these I I absolutely know is true. Um, uh, One seems... (laughs) Another one seems um, plausible. The other two seem plausible. The salamander frozen for 90 years just doesn't seem right to me. I'm not aware of any uh, ability they have to survive that, uh, that, that length of time. Uh, they might have some, you know, regenerative capabilities. You know, you cut off a limb, it grows back type of thing that you see in certain certain animals. But I think 90 years is just too long for uh, something like a salamander to come back. Okay, Rebecca? Oh, man. Um, I kind of like the salamander story, so I want that to be true. Um, he'd be like Encino Man, right? But it's <laughs> Kind <so>. of. <laughs> But he'd be able to act. I don't know. That's the first thing. (laughs) But he can act, right? I don't know. I watch good movies. (laughs) Salamander version of Brendan Fraser. (laughs) Um, Casino man sucks. (laughs) I'm going to go with the. I think I'm going to go with the uh, the satellite thing too. Okay, so three three for the satellites and one for the salamander. So everyone agrees that men are struck by lightning four times as often as women. Yeah, they just seem more foolhardy. I like the golf course. uh, They seem taller. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. That is science. Um, It it is totally due to men... You know, waving metal around outside more than women do. I See, guess. <laughs> <laughs> they engage in activities which would put them more at risk for that Thank than women. Thank you. <laughs> Everyone also agrees that number three is is true. The uh, the crack of a whip is made by the tip exceeding the speed of sound, right. causing a small sonic boom. That is also science. That is true. Yep. Does anybody remember Sagan? Sagan, yes, that was I was on Cosmos. Really, that Actually, was on Cosmos. Yep. Yes, you better get that one correct. Yep. Chat. Is that where we learned that? That was the first time I heard that. Yep, was I, I saw it. Hey, I watched it a few days ago. I got that from a BDSM website myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Uh-huh. That's the most educational BDSM uh, website I've ever heard of. <laughs> is that a science site? What is that? <laughs> it's a, uh, we'll, we'll discuss it later. All right. And number four, Russian <laughs> scientists thought out a salamander they believe to have been frozen for 90 years and it was still alive. That one is science. Nice. Uh-huh. Encino salamander. Salamanders and frogs can be frozen solid and then recover later when they thaw out. They just often, ask McDonald's. Yeah, they often survive the you know the winters by just freezing. Um, which means that number two, uh, since people have been putting artificial satellites into orbit, over forty satellites have been damaged or destroyed by meteors. Is fiction? Does anybody want to hazard a guess as to what the true number is? Um, twelve. How about zero? Yeah, I was going to say zero is a good guess. Zero, zero but one. it's not. But it's not true. The true number is one. There's been a one. single satellite struck by a meteor. Uh, this was the Olympus satellite. European Space Agency's Olympus satellite in 1993 was destroyed by a meteor. And that's destroyed. the only. Wow. The only case. Well, so far. Aren't there all kinds of very, very small things? You know. 
Yeah, there's space junk they, all over the place, but there, that's why I said it's a meteor specifically, not by collisions with other space junk. Actually, does could, a meteor have to be a specific size? No, it's just something. The Leonid meteoroids are like grains of sand, aren't they? They're yeah. they're a lot yeah, of them gen- are, yeah. Generally, yeah, the ones you see glowing in the sky, they're they're <clears throat> like a grain of sand. Um, but at last last time I checked, they're they're tracking um, seven thousand objects, seven pieces of, of objects that are orbiting the Earth and, and you know, varying in size from you know big satellites to uh, God, what's the the tiniest thing they can track? I don't know if it's like a few a few inches across. Is it a golf ball that was hit off of a space station? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is st- there is stuff or like some, that. They or some can't... of those bolts they lost on the last spacewalk. <laughs> Right, but they, they don't track anything much smaller than that. Um, I don't think they 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 can if, get that much smaller. But if, one of the seven thousand is a lot. I remember reading years ago that there was five, and then the next time I checked, like you know, five years later, it's like oh, now they're up to seven thousand. The big danger with with all this orbiting junk is that you have this cascade effect. You have a certain point. If you have a, a lot of junk introduced at once, or you reach like I say a critical mass. And it just starts spreading throughout, you know, throughout low Earth orbit. You know, everything hitting kind of everything else, making more and more debris. And eventually, you have, in a, you know, over a very short period of time, a lot more debris, and making it so inhospitable there that you, you really can't put anything in orbit. And that's that's the big fear of having all this space junk that you would have this hmm. effect. We got to put up a big magnet to to, to collect it all up. Right. <laughs> right. Now, more there importantly, who who uh, who got it right tonight, Steve? Uh, that was everyone but Bob. Ah, oh, everyone but Bob. Everyone but Bob. Bob that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen very often. Bob is no, it descending doesn't. It rapidly. Doesn't. Rapidly. Have you, have you have you looked at the chart, Mister Twenty Four Percent? Other of us are ascending rapidly. Evan, do you have a puzzle for us this week? Yeah, but can I share the can I share the answer to last week's puzzle? Yes, you can. Excellent. Okay, so for those of you who missed last week's puzzle, here it is again. I read red lines on a white background, but occasionally the background is not white. I interpret stress patterns, but by nature I struggle to stay upright. I analyze vessels and the directions they travel, but their movements mean nothing. And though its lone job is to protect you, I have the power to see beyond this purpose. So what is my profession? And the answer answer is... is, I am a sclerologist. Yay! And congratulations to Mike. (laughs) On the uh, on the message boards. For What's that? What now? They study the white of the eye. Yes, S C L E R O L O G I S T. Sclerologist. The opposite so of an iridologist. <laughs> so there are people that study just the sclera. Yep, that's right. And they can they claim they can analyze all sorts of ailments and problems with you uh, based on based on what's going on with your sclera. Right. That really is iridology reversed. It is. Yeah, they, they claim they can do all that with your iris. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And the reflexologists. Look and at it's all foot. crap. <laughs> it's just all cold reading. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. So good job, Mike. Stare into my eyes. Congratulations. All right, now give us this week's puzzle. Now, Please. Here, <clears throat> okay. If I have something that is said to have existed in the first century that was first written about in the 8th century, that was actually produced in the 14th century, that was almost totally lost in the 16th century, and that was proven to be a hoax in the 20th century, what do I have? Good luck, everyone. Okay, thanks, Evan. Thank you. Bob, do you have a quote for us to close out the show? 
But of course, I've got a quote from one of my favorite authors, Isaac Asimov. I've enjoyed this one for years. I've just rediscovered it recently. He said, The most exciting phrase to hear in science, the one that heralds the most discoveries, is not Eureka, but that's funny. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that is funny. It is funny. <laughs> Isaac Asimov. He's a good one man. Of, one of the co-founders of the modern skeptical movement. That's true. Yeah, he's one an icon. Well, thanks for joining me, everyone. It was a pleasure. Yeah, good episode. Always a good time. A good time tonight. Good yeah, time. It's always a good time. Next week, the uh, Skeptics Guide hosts will be at TAM 5, the Amazing Meeting, Meeting 5 in Las Vegas, Nevada. We hope to see a lot of our listeners there. Both Rebecca and I will be giving lectures on Sunday morning, so if you are going, try to stay through uh, Sunday morning to hear us speak. Then we will still be posting up an episode next week, and we'll be making a lot of uh, recordings, hopefully from TAM 5, and hope to report on it when we get back. And until next week, this is your Skeptics Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Problems, proof, endless delays.